Read God's word in Luke 22, the first 34 verses. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. He sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. You shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? He shall show you a large upper room furnished, there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, The hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. There was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, They that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but he shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, Strengthen thy brethren. He said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I 
tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. This far we read the word of God. Call your attention to verses 31 and 32. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Beloved saints of Jesus Christ, what is the greatest temptation you've ever faced? Probably, often in a moment of trial, a moment when life just got turned upside down. Maybe, as it would be for the case of the disciples, a moment when the man you had been following suddenly appears not to be the man you thought he was. He's going to die instead of being the king who will reign in glory. Maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was some other life-changing event. What is the greatest trial? And then in that trial, the deepest temptation you've ever faced. Maybe it's a present trial. Or maybe... You remember a past trial. The deepest trial leading to the deepest temptation, which temptation ultimately is not to lust, to envy, to kill, to commit adultery. Grievous temptations those are. But ultimately to deny that Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you can identify such a moment in your life, Then you remember how dark it seemed, how unsure of yourself and your future you were, and how you probably thought, if there's any moment at which I need Jesus Christ to come and fix things now, this is the moment. And if you asked yourself, now where is Christ? Where is my Savior in this moment of great trial? And I were to tell you he's praying, what would be your response? He's praying? He's off in himself over there somewhere? I need him to act to change my life? And he's off praying? Or, oh, he's praying. My Savior is praying, all is going to turn out well, for my Lord has not forgotten me. Which would be your response? In an imminent temptation for the disciples, this is the Lord's assurance that he gives to them, and especially to Peter, I have prayed for thee. And the fact that Jesus prayed, Peter, Find your hope and your comfort. And know that though from an earthly perspective, all will not be so well, from a spiritual viewpoint, all will be well. 
The doctrine set forth in our text is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. It's a doctrine that our Canons of Dort spells out at length in the fifth head. A beautiful doctrine, and the fifth head of the Canons, a beautiful presentation of that doctrine, and one that I don't have time tonight to refer to, that is the Canons, but you would profitably go home tonight and end your Sabbath day by reading that fifth head again and meditating on it. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints, which teaches in a nutshell that you and I are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and at the same time, Satan, who is far more powerful than you and I, ceases not to assault us. He goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and at no moment for even the splittest, smallest of seconds is he turning his attention away from the church and believers, but at every second he's focused on the church and on the believing members of the church to destroy us. And we cannot stand a moment, but our Lord, as the mediator of the covenant, as the administrator of the grace and mercy of Jehovah God, doesn't forget us, continues to hold us up, to preserve in us that life that he worked in us by regeneration, infallibly, inevitably, in the end, to bring us to glory. That, in a nutshell, is the preservation the saints. There are a number of components to that doctrine. If you say, what all comprises that doctrine? One component is prominent in our text tonight, the intercession, the prayers of Jesus Christ. I call your attention to the text under the theme, Christ's prayer for Peter's preservation. Notice first, violent shaking predicted. Second, messianic intercession assured. And third, grateful response required. It was the night in which Jesus would be betrayed and arrested, and in the upper room, he was telling the eleven, Judas presumably already having left, of what would happen wasn't the first time that he told them that in Jerusalem he would be arrested, tried, and killed. It wasn't the first time that he added that they should not lose hope for the third day he would rise again from the dead. They didn't understand it any of the previous times and they don't understand it now. Peter immediately shows he doesn't understand it when he says, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You prayed that my faith fail not? As if I needed that prayer? All's going to be fine with me, Lord. And yet the Lord says, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. This is a great temptation, a time of temptation, for the disciples as a whole and for Peter specifically. The temptation, not that they go steal, not that they commit adultery, but that they say of Jesus Christ their master, 
I don't know him. He means nothing to me. He does no good to me. So away with him and don't kill me if you're about to kill him as if I'm allied with him. This is the temptation that is imminent. On the one hand, from the viewpoint of the atoning death of Jesus Christ, he needed to undergo that trial, and the disciples must endure this temptation for two reasons. In the first place, the work Jesus Christ did on the cross is a work he did alone. And if not even the part of my righteousness can add to his, then there on the cross, where his perfect righteousness is fully demonstrated, it must be clear that he alone bears the wrath of God for sin. Nobody helps, not his 12 disciples, not his mother Mary. He suffers alone because his high priestly work on the cross is sufficient. In the second place, this must come upon Jesus, the trial of the disciples forsaking him and denying him, because it underscores that he suffered for our sin. And one, in fact, I'm bold to say the primary consequence of sin is that it leaves you or me alone. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they suddenly found that they weren't any longer in friendship with God. He would restore them to friendship, but they had forfeited that beautiful gift. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they even found that they weren't each other's friends anymore. Not perfectly. They had turned on each other, and Adam is ready to blame Eve and Eve another. The point is that sin always leaves you or me alone. And it's a point I want our young people to remember. Sometimes looking for excitement in life, you find a group of others with whom you can be a part who will go off and busy themselves in sin. And you say you're having fun. And you say you have friends. And you don't have friends in the church. And you can't have this kind of fun in the church. So you think this is what life is all about. But I tell you that as soon as say as the police catch you in some criminal act or misdemeanor, you and your friends, they will leave you alone. They will not claim you as their friend at that point. That's the inevitable ongoing effect of sin. I'm going to say one more thing to drive home the point. Whereas heaven is a place where the people of God dwell together in covenant fellowship with each other and with God. And there is sweet friendship. Hell is a place where many, many people suffer the wrath of God, each alone. The sinners in hell don't band together and say, well, it's an eternity now that we have to endure this. And it's a miserable existence, but let's band together and make the most of it, each suffers alone. So Jesus Christ, in dying on the cross, suffers for our sins. He suffers alone. and The disciples must forsake him and deny him 
in order to underscore that point. That from the viewpoint of Jesus, but from the viewpoint of the disciples, there's certainly no excuse for what they were about to do. He who was the Son of God, in whom all their hopes were centered and focused and based, who was the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament, they forsook. To that temptation, Jesus refers in the text by the figure of the sifting of wheat. Satan hath desired you that he may sift you as wheat. For the day of threshing machines and combines, when a man harvested his wheat, he needed to separate the grain from the straw. And in order to do that, he might use various methods, but one was to lay all of the wheat down on a hard-packed dirt surface and take an iron instrument and beat the wheat again and again and again and again. Or maybe he'd find a way for horses or mules to pull a heavy object over it again and again until the grain and the straw were separated. The sifting of wheat. There are two things about that figure that help us understand the violence, or rather the temptation, that the disciples would undergo. The first is the violence. You don't sift wheat by just shaking gently the straw and seeing if the grain will fall off. It takes force. It takes effort. And Satan would put forth force and effort to bring these disciples into temptation. You don't just quickly get 11 men who for three years have said, this is my Lord, my master, my teacher, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to even maybe leave my wife and children for a time to follow him. You don't quickly get them to say, well, fooey on it, I'm giving it all up. It takes violence and force. But secondly, the figure underscores what the envisioned goal of the temptation would be to separate the disciples from Christ. Maybe in an outward sense, but Satan had a much deeper, much deeper goal to destroy that living bond of faith that united them to Christ as the grain is united to the straw. If Satan can get that living bond of faith, that work of God's grace in them, to come to naught, then he can get all those disciples into hell with him. And that was his desire. If the twelve disciples, the closest friends of our Lord and Savior on earth, suffered such a grievous and violent temptation, you and I must not be surprised. There come times in our life when we too ask, is it worth it? Being a Christian, is it worth it? The self-denial that's required of me, is it worth it? Should I give it up? Satan would make the giving up of this Christian life and faith to appear pleasurable to you and me. We would get immediate advantages we would get the respect of the world. Maybe persecution towards us personally would cease or at least lessen for a time. 
He doesn't remind us, Satan doesn't, what we'd be giving up. To deny that Jesus Christ is our Lord? He doesn't tell us that that will rock us to the very core. That if we should succumb to his temptation and God really were to let that bond of faith be destroyed, that we'd go to hell. He only says to us, it's okay. Put yourself first. Be happy. Give it up. Walk away. Don't be surprised if that temptation comes on you. It did to the twelve. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, every temptation that you or I do experience is one that is common to humanity. One that other children of God experience also. But if the lesson that we take from the temptation that would come on the twelve is that we too might be tempted There's another point to drive home here. That is that Satan sets his sights, not just on all who follow Jesus, but on those who are closest to him. In other words, he might very well, in his desire to destroy the entire congregation of Loveland Protestant Form Church, say, the way to do it is to get the minister and the elders The deacons, I do not mean to leave the impression that the minister, the elders, and the deacons are closer to Christ than the members of the congregation. Nonetheless, the point is that they represent Christ in a special way. That they are, by virtue of being put in their office, distinguished from the rest of the congregation. And are to lead the congregation in following Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Satan, himself a fox and no dummy, knows that if he can get the twelve, he has all the followers. If he can get the office bearers, he has a good chance of getting the congregation. And so elders and deacons also ought not be shocked if one day they find that their own faith is sorely tested and tried. And that they are considering renouncing Christianity, something they must not do, but they ought not be surprised if the temptation comes on them. There are two factors in the text that explain the violence of the temptation that the disciples would face and that you and I would do face. The first is Satan himself. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired you. We're taught in James 1 that God does not tempt man. Though he leads us into tempting circumstances, he's not the one who works temptation and causes it to take root and be so attractive to us in our heart and soul. Satan does that. Temptation is Satan's tool to destroy the work of God. That was the first temptation in Eden. That is every temptation subsequently. And so Jesus Christ tells Peter, Satan is working here. Do you remember? Do you bear in your consciousness how often Satan has you in his sights? We forget it, don't we? But Jesus won't have us forget it. 
Satan hath desired you. The word desired in the Greek connotes not just that Satan had this wish or some general goal. Hmm, let's see what I can do to the disciples. But that Satan asked God for them. You think of Job. Satan himself under God's sovereign control. and That ought to be for him Give him reason to pause. We're going to go ask God, who controls all things and who loves Job. I'm going to go ask God to give Job to me. But he did that to Job, and he does that with regard to the eleven as well. He comes to God and he demands that God give him the twelve. It even seems that God must have heard him. For what did we read in verse 3 of the chapter? Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And so it explains not only Job's and David's and Peter's, but even your and my temptation in all its violence is Satan's desire to destroy us. The second factor is our weakness. That Jesus underscores in the text by addressing Peter, Simon, Simon. Three years earlier, Jesus had called this man, Simon, the son of Jonas, to be his disciple. When he called him, he said to him, you were given the name Simon at birth, but I'm going to call you Peter. Simon, representing the man as he was by nature, the man as he is in Adam, weak, sinful, depraved, dead apart from the grace of God. Peter, representing whom God would make him become a rock, strong. And now it's interesting when in the scriptures we read of Jesus addressing Peter, to know whether he calls him Simon or whether he calls him Peter in any given circumstance. There are times when that's probably not too significant, but here it is. Simon, Simon, do you remember who you are? Do you remember your own inherent weaknesses and depravity? Satan has desired you. Don't Think you are ready to go with me into prison and to death. You are about to fall deeply hard. And you'd better understand that, Simon. And so you and I, and our canons of Dort in the early articles of the fifth head, reminds us that the two factors that make the work of preservation necessary and that make temptation so grievous, are both Satan's power and incessant attacks. And our own weakness, we could not stand a moment. So what's our hope? The Lord answers that question when he says, But I have prayed for thee. First of all, here notice that Jesus just changed his pronoun. 
hearts. Children, junior high, maybe the point escaped you, but you know, you know there's a difference between the word you and the word thee when you read it in the King James Version. You know that in 1611 the word thee was the common second person singular pronoun. It's addressing one person. And the word you is the second person plural pronoun. It's addressing a whole body. Simon, Simon, I want you to know that Satan has desired to have all my disciples, you, but I have prayed for thee. And you say, does that mean Jesus wasn't praying for the other 11? The other 10 anyway, apart from Judas? Oh, he prayed for them too. He isn't singling Peter out here because Peter is in himself better or distinct from the others. But he has a word for Peter because of who Peter thinks he is. The confident, bold, I'll be loyal to you, Lord. In my own strength, I can do it. That disciple needs to be told that especially for him, Jesus Christ prayed. You remember that Judas was the treasure of the disciples. He held the purse. And Satan has him already. And although the disciples didn't vote on their officers, Peter was the self-appointed and recognized spokesman. You might call him the president. He was the one who always spoke first. He was the one who spoke first as a Peter. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's the one who spoke first as a Simon. I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Jesus says to him above all. If you don't understand that your only hope is in the prayers of your Savior. Then you are doomed. And not only that. But what's suggested here is that Satan who said to get all of Jesus' followers. I need to get the twelve. Said also, if I can get Peter and Judas, I think I've got the rest. So Christ says, here's your only hope. I have prayed for thee. And he focuses Peter's eyes and our eyes on Jesus Christ as our only and complete high priest. When we think of Jesus Christ as our only and complete high priest, we often think of him in his sacrificial work in dying on the cross, and necessarily so. He was the Lamb of God. He was the blood. His was the blood that made atonement for sin. But in our text, it's not just his death on the cross. It is his intercessory work. Remember that the work of the high priest in the Old Testament was threefold oversee and administer the sacrifices, then pray for the people as the incense was being offered on the altar of incense, and then come out and bless the people with the Aaronitic blessing. And Jesus Christ in our text is saying, don't just think of him as the only and complete high priest when it comes to his sacrifice, but also when it comes to his blessing his people and when it comes to his praying on our behalf. He is the Son of God, the only 
perfect, righteous one. The only one whose prayers God will hear. But up in heaven, now at the right hand of God, and before he went to heaven, as he was on earth, praying for Peter, he brought intercessions, supplications, petitions for the well-being, the spiritual defense, and sustaining of other people. He is our high priest. He is also our substitute. I have prayed for thee. And it's the prayers of Jesus Christ for his people that God will hear. But don't overlook one other thing. Satan desired, and that meant he asked God something. Call it prayed. It's not prayer the way you and I ought to pray. But he came to God with a request, and so does Jesus Christ. And do you see the great difference between the requests of Satan and the intercessions of our Savior? A difference, first of all, in approach and in tone. Satan, who knows the righteousness of God and can appeal to it to his own advantage when he wants to, you shouldn't take sinners into heaven with you. You mayn't do that. And there's nobody that's paid for the blood of this Peter and the other eleven They need to come to hell with me. That's his approach. And the approach of Jesus Christ instead. One of supplication and entreaty. And beseeching and interceding. In the second place a difference in basis. If Satan prayed knowing that every sinner deserves destruction. Jesus Christ prayed knowing that every sinner. Who deserves that out of the mass of humanity of every sinner who deserves destruction are some distinguished by the grace of God for whom God has prepared eternal life. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. The failing of your faith, Peter, is the issue. Satan wants to separate you from your Lord So that you're dead again in sin. And I have prayed. That that not. Happen. On the basis of what our text says. About the intercession of Jesus Christ. On our behalf. I want to say five things. About the doctrine of the preservation. Of saints. This is not an exhaustive treatment. And what I say is limited. To what can come out of this text. But we ought to have the doctrine more fully before us. The first question is, what is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints? What does it teach? It does not teach that the children of God will never fall into sin. Mistakenly, sometimes a child of God despairs because he or she sins and sees the ongoing nature of his or her sins and says, I must not be a Christian because if I was a Christian, I wouldn't. Be sinning like this. That is not true. Alongside the new man of Christ. Is always until we die. The old man of sin. And the struggle goes on. And on. And on. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Is not they will not fall into sin. But three things. That God. Will preserve their faith. 
He will, though they sin and though they suffer the effects of sin, not allow the bond uniting us to Christ to be destroyed. And he will bring us back again to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that thy faith fail not. He'll do that in the way of bringing us to conversion and repentance. And when thou art converted. So every child of God who falls into sin, grieves on account of sin, sees that he just gave up happiness and brought misery, a boatload of misery on himself, knows that God who loves him will bring him or her to repentance. And thirdly, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints from our text teaches that once brought to repentance, the child of God will again serve the body of Christ and the well-being of the church. When thou art converted, get busy. You have brothers. Strengthen thy brethren. Serve your place in the body of Christ. That's first. What is the doctrine of the preservation of saints? Secondly, who are these saints? Rome's answer is, they are people who have an extra measure of holiness. They can know God will preserve them because they are already a cut above. They are the upper crust of believers. That's not the biblical approach. That's not Jesus' approach. Simon is not holier by virtue of being a disciple. He is just Simon, Simon. That's all you are, and that's all I am, and that's all we ever will be, this side of the grave especially. Not those who have an extra measure of merit, but sinners in whom the life of Christ is worked. And that's really why God preserves his saints, because he will not let his grace fail life of Christ in us be brought to nothing. Now the other thing to notice about who is that the word of Christ is very personal. I have prayed for thee. and That's the word that comes to you, believer, by his word and spirit tonight. He prays for you. He loves you. He died for you. And this is his prayer, that your faith fail not. You are a saint from the viewpoint of the scripture's definition of saint. The third question is how? And again, as part of answer to that question, we point to the basis. Jesus Christ can say what he does, I have prayed for thee, because he knows what is about to happen. He is going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. He's ready to be. He understands why he must be. There he will, as our great high priest, lay down his life on the tree of the cross. There he will earn for us the favor of God and life everlasting. The prayer Jesus makes is based on his finished work on the cross. But the how, again from the viewpoint of our text, he prays. He prays. You pray? mean before you eat do a quick pray I don't mean did you bow your heads and close your eyes earlier tonight when we prayed I mean 
to you. Knowing that you are redeemed by the blood of Christ and filled with his life. Consciously enter into the very presence of Jehovah God. And pour out your heart and your soul. Bring to him your every need. And then think of brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who also have needs. And bring prayers for them to him. Do you pray? Do you pray in the knowledge and conviction He hears and will answer. That's what Jesus does. He never stops praying. He doesn't just pray for five minutes and then say, I've got other things to do. He can be praying every moment and governing the affairs of the universe. He can be interceding For the church of Jesus Christ. And at the same time. Fighting against Satan. The arch enemy. And never once does he skip a beat. In bringing to God his petitions. His beseeching. The grace of God. Come on you and me. That's the how. He prays. Now. We don't always think. Deeply or enough of what it means that Christ sits at the right hand of God. But from the viewpoint of the text, I've tried to explain it to you. He prays. He whispers, being at God's right hand, right into the ear of God itself. The God who sent him into this world, into this flesh. The God who sent him to the death of the cross. The God who raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand says, I love to hear your prayers. And your prayers for your people. I'll hear you. Keep praying. And our Lord does. I have prayed for thee. The fourth question is. If it's the will of God. To bring his people to heaven. And cause his grace to appear victorious. And then Satan comes along and says, God, I'd like to destroy that work. Why does God say, try it? Instead of saying, don't think about it. Get out of here. You stay 2,000 miles away from my church. Don't you so much as cross this line. You cross that line and you're going to hell now. Why doesn't God do that? Why does he say, okay, yep, I see Job, try it. I see the office bearers of the congregation, have at them. And there's an answer both as regards God, as regards Satan, and as regards us. But it's important that we ask the question, you see, we think the Christian life should be so easy. We think that if we're saved by the blood of Christ and filled with his life, spiritually, things should simply get better and better and better and better, and they don't. And then again, the child of God might despair. It's not supposed to go this way. What I'm doing is telling you, yes, it goes this way. This is normal. Well, normal in a sinful world. But why? And the answer is in the first place. That God demonstrate his power 
his unfailing faithfulness to his covenant, his constant and abiding love for you and for me by not keeping us from being tempted, but preserving us and even holding us close in the moment of temptation. Now, it doesn't always seem to me and to you that we're held so close and that we're right in his bosom, but that's what he tells us. I'm still holding you by my hand. The ground is shaking under you. Your soul is full of turmoil, and I'm holding you by my hand. That's his love. He does not let go. And he means to underscore that for Satan, too. Satan, you're the biggest fool. The reason God said to Satan, all right, You want to do that? Try it once. Isn't because Satan was going to get anywhere that even his entering into Judas Iscariot was nothing more than God fulfilling in this way. His counsel of reprobation for Judas Iscariot was numbered among the reprobate. But Satan has to learn what a fool he is. Try as he might, he will not destroy the grace of God the work of God in us. Why from your viewpoint and mine must we be tempted at times to teach us to pray, to watch, to be on our guard, to teach us that this struggle is constant, the need for prayer is constant, the moment at which we may boast, Lord, I am ready to go with thee into prison and death will not arise in this life We must look to Jesus Christ and rely on his strength. And then fifthly, the text teaches us that the saints can be assured of their preservation. I have prayed for thee. What more assurance do you need, Peter? What more assurance do you need? child of God, and that your Savior says to you, I have prayed for thee. Arminianism says you can't be sure. Rome says you can't be sure. On the one hand, they both say you can't be sure because part of salvation is up to you. And even if today you're doing all of the right things, you don't know that tomorrow you will do all of the right things. So you can't be sure. And besides, they both say, if you were sure, that would make you careless and profane. This morning we saw that with regard to the doctrine of justification. Again, the Arminians and Rome say that with regard to the doctrine of election. And definite limited atonement. If you know all of these things or hold to any of them, Rome and Arminianism says, that could lead to careless profanity, to ungodliness. And now with regard to the doctrine of preservation, if you know for sure you're going to heaven, inevitably that will lead you to live an ungodly life, says Rome and Arminianism, completely ignoring. Those who are preserved are not those who in their own strength and by their own merits and in their own power do something to contribute to their salvation. 
but are those entirely for whom Christ died and for whom Christ prays and in whom Christ lives again by his power and spirit. No child of God, if you are at this moment in such a moment of temptation, a trying of your faith, a time when you wonder, does your Lord love you? This is his word to you. I have prayed for thee. Now calm your fears. Rest in him. This is his word. And so our canons, Head 5, Article 8, gives a number of reasons why the child of God may be sure that we will inevitably persevere and none of those reasons have to do with me. I'm just a Simon, not a Peter. They all have to do with God. His counsel is sure. His promises do not fail. His gracious call, his irresistible work in the hearts of his people will not be revoked. The merits of Jesus Christ in dying on the cross, the intercession of Christ at God's right hand, and the preserving work of Christ will never be rendered ineffectual. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts will never be withdrawn. Those in whom God has worked grace and implanted the life of Christ will be brought to heaven. That, from the viewpoint of our text, is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And then demonstrating again that this doctrine does not make men careless and profane, our Lord says, and when thou art converted... Strengthen thy brethren. You've got work to do. He requires a grateful response. He's referring, of course, to the time when Peter will be brought to see how heinous his sin was and will grieve on account of it. That will happen already, at least it will begin happening, when Jesus from the balcony the second story of the high priest's palace looks down at Peter in the courtyard and simply looks at him and Peter says, oh. I said I wouldn't. And I did. And he knows it. And he went out and wept bitterly. That when thou art converted includes the word that would come to Peter on resurrection morning, especially to Peter. The Lord is risen. You were afraid of him dying. You were afraid you might die with him. You thought all was lost. The Lord is risen. That conversion includes the appearance of Jesus to the disciples in which he specifically said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Are you going to boast about that now? How great your love is? Peter, he says a second time, do you love me? Skip more than these. Do you love me? And the third time, Peter, would you even call me your friend? And in response to Peter's humble answer, the Lord says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And here again to Peter and to the office bearers in the church is underscored the effect of our sins as office bearers is to weaken brothers and sisters in Christ. And if the sins we commit which weaken them are not of the sort that we should be put out of office, 
then in our office we must, when brought to repentance, strengthen them. Or even if we are put out of office on account of gross sin, it remains our calling as brothers in Christ, when brought to repentance, to go to those who've been weakened on account of our transgressions and work to build them up again, pointing them to the very Lord and Savior who died for us and who restored us to fellowship him. That's the command that comes to Peter. He'll carry it out as an apostle, as a witness to the ends of the earth of Jesus Christ, risen and working in his church. Nor does this command come only to Peter. Do you remember what David said in Psalm 51? Having been brought to repentance, genuine sorrow for his sin of adultery and murder, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. In other words, this is the calling of every child of God, who being brought to see the heinousness of our sin, but also to marvel at the grace of God restoring us, says, I can again live unto God's praise and glory. Let me be specific. There comes a brother or a sister of the congregation to you someday. Says to you, all is not well with you. Then instead of immediately saying, oh, all is well with me, I'm ready to go with Christ into prison and to death. What do you mean all is not well with me? You ought to say, thank you for coming to tell me. You didn't just do that out of the blue. You had reasons to do that. You observed me for a while. You saw the way I talked. You saw the way I acted. You saw the things I do. And you came to me as a brother to remind me that all is not well with me. And now, again, if somebody comes to you someday, and the person who comes to you is one who has fallen himself or herself in an earlier time into such public gross sin that maybe the name was mentioned from this very pulpit. And don't say to him or her, Oh, stop! You, you forget! You forget what you did! But he or she, having been brought to genuine sorrow for sin, is called by Christ and empowered by Christ to strengthen the brethren. And so you say to him or to her, you really know what you're talking about. Your past life's experience helped you understand how sin shows itself in the body of Christ and how some people aren't even aware of the temptation in which they're They are and about to fall. God be thanked that he's restored you and you've come to me. This is the calling of the child of God who's been brought to sincere sorrow for sin and is thankful for the preservation of the saints. I'll end where I began. Have you identified the greatest trial 
and a most turbulent temptation, either in your life past or your life present. A moment at which it seems that Christ has left you and that following Christ no longer does you any good. And you wonder whether maybe it's not time then to renounce him. You know that your Lord is praying. You will not leave him. You will not forsake him. He has not forsaken you. I do not say the way will be easy. It will not. But he's praying. And the Lord hears. And if you say, yes, that time was past. It isn't now. But I remember a time it's past. Then you know that the Lord heard and answered the prayer of Christ on your behalf. And here was the answer to that prayer. And here is the evidence that you are preserved. Very simply, your faith has not failed, but it's grown and it is growing and it will grow until our Lord comes. Amen. Father which art in heaven, hear the intercessions of our Savior for us. Hear our intercessions for others. Hear our own prayers that we be led not into temptation, but delivered from the evil one. For Jesus' sake, amen.